The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Do you often find it challenging to grow perennials in the heat and humidity of the South? In this episode, we talk with Kata Cress Wallace about the best ways to overcome those challenges. It's no secret that perennials love the full sun, but what about those dry, shady gardens? She'll shed some light on that. Kata shares some simple, low-maintenance techniques that'll be well worth your efforts. And she also throws in a deer-resistant plant fun fact. Living in Durham, North Carolina, Kata has the opportunity to interact with thousands of gardeners as the Southeastern Product Manager for Walters Garden. She has been closely tied to the nursery industry all throughout her life. Her father owns a nursery in Austria named Sarastro Stouten that specializes in unique and rare plants. Kata came to the United States interning at Plant Delights Nursery with Tony Avant. This was after earning a master's degree in geography and Spanish. She also led international crews at Hoffman Nursery as garden coordinator and production supervisor responsible for producing millions of grass liners. In 2019, she received the Young Professional Award from the Perennial Plant Association and was named to the Greenhouse Product News 40 Under 40 Class of 2020. This is Episode 78, Perennials at Work in Heat and Humidity. Kata Cress Wallace. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Kata, why do you think perennials have become so popular in our gardens? I think that perennials have always been very popular in Europe, but the climate conditions are very perfect there. So like in the UK gardens or English gardens that you might see in a magazine, they're always very green and lush. Through breeding in the last couple of decades, perennials have really advanced and they have been also become better genetics for southern gardens. Another thing is that people like Pete Adolf, like big designers, have done very big, nice projects now in the U.S., like the Highland in New York. I recently read it's like one of the most visited sites in New York, actually. The Highland is actually full of perennials. I think people just see it more. That has translated that people want perennials more in their gardens. What is one thing that would help us become better perennial gardeners? In general, I think it's definitely recommended to just educate yourself of which perennials are actually really good for your site. Really does matter with perennials, which zone you live in. What are your maybe microclimates in your garden? Do you have a shady garden? Do you have a very sunny garden? Did you do a lot to your soil or did you not? I think soil really makes a huge difference of how successful you are gardening with perennials. 
And the reality is, I think that perennials aren't the easiest to garden with, but they give you so much joy if you are successful. Just educating yourself, reading books or listening to podcasts like we do now or watching YouTube videos of actual really good gardeners or influencers that really can help with how successful you're going to be with perennials in your garden. Funny enough, I really think the main thing is having good soil in your garden. People spend really a lot of money when it comes to perennials. Perennials aren't as cheap as annuals. They're still cheaper than buying shrubs or trees. It's an investment, but it's an investment for many years in a way because perennials do come back year after year after year. Prepping your beds with really good soil and actually also really adding compost every year really makes you successful with perennials. Any hope for all of us that have lay soils? I do think so. I think it's just really a matter of, unfortunately, spending the money and really bringing in good soil into your garden. If you don't have the money, which is totally understandable, this is just where you really have to adjust what you plant in your garden. Maybe you should stay away from tall garden flocks because it's known for how much it really needs rich soil. My soil actually in Durham, North Carolina, isn't really the best either. And I've created some garden beds where I really brought in some soil and really that's where I put more special perennials here. But on the other side, I don't have the money either to just bring in tons and tons of soil. One plant I've been really successful with is actually Perovskia, the Russian sage. Mm -hmm. It actually does really well in clay soil. It might take a little bit to adjust, and I still try to, as I dig the hole, at least give it a little bit of starter help. Like either I put in a little bit of soil, at least in that hole, so it establishes better, but it has really done pretty well for me. You mentioned genetics and how that had improved. What do you mean by genetics with a plant? First of all, I think we need to acknowledge that this is still a fairly new thing. Even though people have bred with perennials maybe for well over 100 years, 100 years in nature is not actually that long. Globalization really helped us bring different species together. I just would like to give you actually an example. So Monarda, the bee balm, is really known for being quite the beast sometimes. Like if you've ever had a Monarda Jacob Klein in your garden, you probably can barely get rid of it. It gets very big and tall and it likes to run. Good colleague or friend of mine, Tony Even at Plant Delights, who I used to work for, he somehow got his hands into a Monarda species from Mexico that doesn't run. And so he shared that genetic with Hans Hansen, who is a breeder at Walters Gardens. Hans crossed this newly found genetic from Mexico with some other plants, and he created the Electroneon series, a collection of monardas. Those are now new cultivars that have like very intense colors, so that's very appealing too. Really, the cool thing is that this monarda doesn't run as aggressively anymore. That's really what I kind of meant by improved genetics because that really helps a normal gardener to be more successful if you have a monarda that just kind of stays in place and has a nice habit to it. Yeah, I can testify to the monarda running everywhere. That's why I eradicated it from my garden. This sounds good. I don't have to try that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of my favorite is called Monarda Electric Neon Pink. And it's really like it has a very intense color. There's like other colors in that collection. If you're not a huge fan of those extreme pink colors, 
It's been like really a game changer for how just nicely it performs in a garden. Are we crossbreeding with pollen or manipulating DNA? There is different ways. I know that a lot of the very advanced breeding companies, they already have the technology to do much crazier things that's way over what I know. Traditional breeding, it's really just taking pollen and and crossing different cultivars, different species with each other. I'm definitely not a breeder, so (laughs) there's only so much I can tell you about that. I commonly hear people say that genetically altered plants are less attracted to pollinators. Do you find that to be true? The Cincinnati Zoo and Proven Winners are doing a cool project right now where they planted a lot of the Proven Winners cultivars, and they are looking exactly into that. I have not heard any results yet, so I think it's still an ongoing project. But I'm really curious because, funny enough, in my job, this is one of the questions I get most often. I think it's really hard to answer. I mean, I totally believe when people say that the true native species that haven't been crossed at all are the best for pollinators. On the other hand, I also would be really interested into looking into things like, is it really so much better for the pollinator if a true species only blooms for so long? Meanwhile, this other cultivar that we might have created actually reblooms. It blooms much longer. It starts earlier. Doesn't that also come with benefits for the pollinator? Those are just like questions I have for people who argue that the true species is the one and only thing for pollinators. But like I said, I'm not really an expert on that. I just really find that very interesting and I'm really curious to see more studies. I do believe it's something that is extremely hard to quantify and actually really look into. I mean, I think you can like count pollen and you can like look at the quality of pollen. In the end, there is still one of my top favorite pollinator plants is actually Agastache Blue Fortune. Whoever had that ever in their garden can totally testify that that plant is like way past blooming and you still see a gazillion bumblebees on it. Just because it blooms so long, I do think there must be a benefit to pollinators. Those are just opinions. (laughs) This is not scientific research at all. I think you got a valid point there that there's additional benefits that maybe are not getting measured. And do you find a reluctance in designers in trying new plants? Yeah, definitely. There is a big gap in communication between breeding companies or companies like us that produce the liners. We sell it to a wholesaler and then the wholesaler to the designer. To a certain degree, we maybe do it a little bit to ourselves. Like we try so hard to introduce a lot of plants that people who don't actually work in the nursery industry, designers get easily overwhelmed with just the amount of new plants come out every year. Just our company sometimes introduces up to 30 or 40 new plants a year. We are just one company in the U.S., just 10 more perennial companies in the U.S. And then there are some in Europe and Japan. It can get very easily overwhelming for designers to really keep up on what is truly an improvement and what is important to them to look at. But I also think we need to do a better job of having those conversations with designers, show them truly why a plant has been an improvement. Maybe it's not always the very newest one from this year. 
maybe we need to show them more a new plant that has been on a market for five years and it has kind of proven itself for the last five years that it's really an improvement and maybe we should talk to them about a much smaller palette still try to show them gardens where you can see them gardens especially if I talk to a designer in Durham I have to do a better job also in showing them this plant in Durham and not just this picture of this pretty garden in Michigan there's lots of ways where we just have to improve the communication between breeding companies wholesale companies and designers I think you're going beyond a trial garden when you're actually putting it out there into an everyday garden or a special garden. It's trying to prove that plant's worth and is it reliable more than just a garden trial because in a garden trial, you're in ideal conditions. Yeah. You're introducing, what, 30 plants a year? I agree. It can get very overwhelming. It, it definitely can and I can definitely see their argument. It's not every year 30, but... This year was a year where we really had a lot of very, very exciting things. For designers, it's very important to see the longevity of it. I also sometimes talk to designers, and I think a big problem they have is they need to trust us that we have reliable supply chain for plants. Mm -hmm. If they design something this year, and then their customer might tell them in two years that they want to extend the project and they want to continue with, let's say, this Nepeta cat mint is, is a plant that gets used a lot in public designs anyway. If they then extend the project in two years, they have to know that they can still get exactly the same cultivar in two years or in five years. Needing that trust, this is where it gets risky for them to try a new cultivar. Yeah, I agree. Can you take us through the process of how a plant actually gets to the point being put on the market from, hey, this plant has potential, and how do we get it to the market time frame and the process on that? Sure. I'm going to just speak now really for a plant that is in the Proven Winners program. It kind of depends sometimes on which plant it is. So while a hosta might take 10 to 12 years that we even are at a stage where we think about introducing it, a different plant like let's say a nepeta might be much quicker. It might be five years from the time that we made the cross to really that we decided from all those crosses we made in year 2015 to the time that we sit down this year and really say, hey, this is the best one out of all of this breeding effort. Which could be how many? 50, 100? Yeah. I remember that I was with Tony Evans and, and Hans Hansen. I was still an intern for Tony. We were standing in a whole field full of hibiscus. It was like a huge field, at least two acres wow. of full of hibiscus. We just walked up and down the rows to decide on two hibiscus in that year. It took us seven hours. I really love plants, but I definitely will say it kind of pushed my patience a little bit after seven hours of looking at the same colored hibiscus, basically, to choose one. And then funny enough, fast forward, the year I started at Walter's Gardens was when we actually introduced that plant. So from the time that I stood with those two guys for seven hours in a hibiscus field to the moment that we actually decided to introduce it, we built supplies so we have to initiated in TC, if it's a plant that is produced in TC or have enough cuttings. It really takes another two years from the moment we decide to introduce something. 
then it's really up to people like me or my coworkers who work in different territories. So I have the territory for Virginia to Alabama. My coworkers work in different regions in the U.S. Then it's really up to us to just go out to wholesale nurseries, show them the plant, tell them why it's different, why it's better, give them some trials. They can trial it for a year. Once it's in the catalog, they just start producing it. And then it's another year before a person would see it in retail or as a designer that you could buy it. It takes actually really a long time. In the whole meantime, we, of course, do trials in production because that is very important, too, that a plant actually is a decent plant that in a container to produce. But then we also have it at different university trials or different trial gardens around the country and, of course, in our own trials in Michigan. Now you said TC. Tell us what TC is. TC is a abbreviation for tissue culture. So it's a form of producing plants. It really does look like you're in a lab. You basically take itty bitty little piece of a plant and you multiply it in a gel that has like hormones in it and stuff. I've never worked in a TC lab, so I'm not really an expert on it. But it's basically a way of propagating plants very efficiently, fast and very clean because you have to take it down so far. You really clean up any diseases, any virus or fungal infections a plant has. So you start with the cleanest plant possible and then it grows in a a little glass with this gel and then it starts getting roots and you just plant it in little tiny cells from the cell you just pot it into bigger liners it's a great way of producing plants very efficiently i think in the 90s a lot of the orchids were started to be produced that way you might remember how orchids were like this really rare and expensive plant in the 80s. And then all of a sudden it started coming into supermarkets and you could just buy your orchid in a supermarket. That was really the time when TC became really, really popular. Rather amazing process. So you're basically cloning it. You find your desirable plant in that two acre field of hibiscus and then you start taking little bitty slivers. So are you cutting it with razor blade? Yeah, it looks like you're in surgery. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's, it has to be very, very clean. People are wearing suits or, or like, you know, lab coats. They really can't eat in there or anything. And they just take with tweezers and little knives, they'll take itty bitty pieces of a plant. And like you said, you clone the plant. That's fascinating. Yeah. We've got that tissue culture rooted, and we've put it in a little cell, and we've taken it to a liner. Then we, what, put it into a a gallon, three gallon, something like that? That's the stage at which I sell the plant. I typically sell the plant as a 72 or a 30 liner. 72, for those who don't know, is about an inch and a half wide of a liner. I don't do inches so well. I'm from Europe, as you can hear, so I'm more a centimeter person. But it's a small plug, and then my customers will take it and put it into a gallon pot or a quart, and they grow it on, and then they sell it to either designers or retail stores. And then we take it and put it in our clay soil and kill it, right? Exactly. But this is why we're here. We talk about how (laughs) we hopefully make this more successful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you think the lifespan I guess ultimately it depends on whether it sells or not, whether that plant stays on the market or not. After you hit the market with these 30 plants that you're hitting with this year, how many would you expect to be around in five or 10 years? I think five or 10 years is still 
a very reasonable time frame where most of them will fill around. It always happens that maybe we introduce a plant that turned out not to be as good or it didn't sell. You try to know your market as best possible and you really think that people will love this plant. This is why you're introducing it. Sometimes it does happen that something just doesn't do as well or maybe it really is more finicky in production than what we thought or we find a even better one in a very short time frame after, which that really is a more rare case. I would say that out of the 30, to really be one that will become the new standard, that it will be around for the next 50 years, you probably get one or two. So I, like, I always like to think, if you think about Calamagrasis calforster, that's like my prime example. It was found in the 40s in Germany, and it is still to this day the absolute standard grass in horticulture for public designs. Sometimes it's just this one-hit wonder that stays around forever, but that's really rare. Let's go back to the two-acre field hibiscus. When do you test that plant? Do you test it or are you already testing it in the field that you're discovering it in? Once we discovered that plant, it then gets moved into a different one where we have the narrow selection of it. And in there, it stays another one or two years. From the big field, we take three and then we test those three against each other for a little longer. Then we put it in a different field. And if we still like it, that's when we start with mini productions. Take a couple of cuttings, grow it out, put it in different gardens from all angles. Look at it. How does it produce in a liner? Does it grow well? Does it overwinter well? That's a huge deal in perennials. Does it need a lot of vernalization or a little vernalization? So there's so many different things you have to check before you even can think about introducing a plant. You definitely want to determine the zones. So you want to see maybe, does it overwinter in Wisconsin? Does it like the heat in the humidity? Savannah, you try to give it to different trials so you can be sure that this plant is overall a really good plant. Now, do people then from Proven Winners go and look at that plant? Or are they relying on whoever's running the trial garden? That is a little different depending on which category and Proven Winners we talk about. At Walter's Gardens, we trial every single plant that goes into the Proven Winners program, no matter if it comes out of our breeding department or not. A lot of the Proven Winners perennials that are in the program do come from the Walter's Gardens breeding department. We trial it. We'll then, of course, give it to our partners at Proven Winners and let them judge, of course, as well. At Proven Winners, it really undergoes the most strict judging and, and trials. If a plant doesn't go into the program, it's still really trialed well. As soon as it hits the market under the Proven Winners umbrella, it really has been trialed even more intensively. All right, I want to switch a little bit. I know you're all over the southeast, and you've probably heard a lot of gardeners' frustrations and their challenges. What are some of the biggest challenges southeastern perennial gardeners face? One of the biggest challenges we already talked about is clay soil, but I think that's the easiest to fix. You can definitely make changes to your soil. Yeah. The biggest challenge that you really can't fix is the lack of cool nights. 
perennials really need cool nights to basically take a break so they can actually put on volume, that they can grow better. Lack of cold nights is really what we are facing in summertime. This is also why perennials might look really good in the south in March, April, May. And then once we hit June, July, and it really gets hot, it gets humid, then we also start to not have any cooling down during the nighttime temperatures. This is when perennials really slow down. They look a little tired and sad. And I think that is the biggest challenge we have as gardeners in the South. You can't really do much about it. <laughs> is there any others? Just in general, the heat and humidity. The humidity is a huge problem when it comes to disease. Diseases, of course, spread much faster if you have humid conditions. It becomes even more important in the South that you spread out your perennials. And of course, it is really important that you choose one that is mildew resistant. Then even if it's mildew resistant, it is really important to have good soil, also to not cram it into a full packed bed where it can't breathe at all. So it gets air circulation. When we do have those really humid conditions in August, that it just has a little bit more air to it. Not planting all too close is one thing you can do to help not get so much diseased plants. It's pretty admirable if somebody can accomplish dense planting in the south. Because I know the movement is to do these matrix plantings and have the really dense planting. Growing up in German and Austrian horticulture, I've grown up with matrix planting since I was a little girl. That was a thing there. It's much newer in the U.S. that people talk about that. I do think you can still do that in the South. It's just a matter of fact that you really don't put too many tall things next to each other. So if I do use that flux penny colada, the tall garden flux, you might really want to see that the things around it are much, much shorter. So the main plant really is kind of standing more alone. The matrix planting isn't as dangerous to have it too close as it is to do like a typical cottage garden. With cottage gardens, you plant much more similar height things next to each other where their mildew can spread much faster. Mildew is a really bad example, actually, because mildew is actually genus-specific. So it can't jump from a phlox to a rubecchia or anything. But yeah, any other fungal issues or anything that you might have in the South, it's just important to keep tall things like phlox that are prone to disease a little bit more as a single plant there. Yeah, that makes sense. This is probably more than just a southeastern challenge, but that would be a perennial that has more deer resistance than others. Is there a group of those that if we planted, the deer wouldn't like as much? Deer resistance is, of course, a huge problem in anywhere that is not very urban or doesn't have a fence. I luckily do not have a huge deer problem, but I do know salvia is one plant that really deer doesn't like that much. The one fun fact I learned about deer that I think not many people know is that young deer does not have a sense of smell. Even though we promote something as deer resistant, a young deer might still eat it because it hasn't developed a smell yet, which I thought was a really, really interesting fact when we talk about deer resistance and I hear so often, oh, but I have had a deer eat even this salvia that, or a rosemary where we say it's super deer resistant. When I read this about young deer, I was like, this makes so much sense now that people still claim that it has been eaten, 
because it might have just been a really young deer. Planting for deer-resistant gardens is definitely a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking, well, we need to turn that deer-resistant gene on in the plant, breed it and turn it on. <laughs> that is hopefully where maybe the crazy CRISPR breeding might help us in like probably another hundred years or so. <laughs> Starve the deer out. <laughs> Pick your perennial plants for a dry, shady garden in the south. One plant that I really like is pulmonaria. It is also a perfect example for how I think that the breeding has advanced. Pulmonaria was never anything that really did well in the South. Pulmonaria is a wonderful dry shade perennial for anybody who is not familiar with it. It's green leaves, has white attractive spots in it. It blooms really, really early, which I always love perennials that bloom early and have still nice foliage presence because then you have the early bloom where usually not a lot is going on in the garden, but then you still have like nice foliage. It also really pairs well with hosta. For anybody who is successful with hosta in the South, I think hosta guacamole is always my go-to for the South. It's pretty much the best hosta that can really withstand the heat and humidity. And then I really like Kyrex. I'm a huge fan of Kyrex for the South. Kyrex Avarillo is a winner. It's one of those winners that I think it will take years and years and years until there's ever a better one. It is a beautiful, yet bright yellow. So it really works well in like dark shade because it just pops really nice. I really like that combo. Pulmonarias, Kyrex, Hostas. One of my top favorite plants out of all is Epimedium, though. A plant that blooms rather early. It's really more of a foliage plant. But if you really have a spot that is super dry, also deer resistant, so that's a huge plus for everybody. I do not understand why it's not used more because it really checks the hard things, I feel like. You don't have to cut it back. The new foliage just kind of comes through it and then grows on. There are so many shapes to the foliage. There's taller ones and, and shorter ones. There is some that run, which is great if you really just have bushes in the back of the garden and you just want something in front so you don't have to weed. It, sometimes it is really helpful if you have more of a running type of perennial. Some are just clumpers. I will say with Epimedium, you should definitely be sure that you want it. It's rather also one of those things that is hard to get rid of once you have it, but it is a wonderful plant for shade. Does it run as bad as ivy? No, no, nowhere as bad like that. There is an epimedium cultivar called Froenleiten that is probably the one that runs the most, but it won't go outside of a bed. It won't just crawl underneath donor or something like an edge on your bed. It won't just keep running. It's definitely not a clumping plant. It spreads a little by rhizomes. It's actually used most in public horticulture in Germany. That specific cultivar, you will see it everywhere in parking lots. It's just such an easy plant. There's really, really nice clumping forms. Pink champagne is one of my favorites. It has really, really cute pink flowers. All right, how about your top pollinator plants? I think my absolute favorite new pollinator plant is Agastache Queen Nectarine. It's brand new. It's going to come to the market to retail centers this year. It's a nice peachy form, and I just love Agastache for the South. I think it is not used enough. This Queen Nectarine is about 28 to 30-something inches. Like I said, I'm not so good in inches. Let's say 30 inches tall. It just blooms forever and has such a nice habit. 
What I like about the Agastache is also the, all the different pollinators you get on it. Blue Fortune is a different type of Agastache. I see mostly bumblebees on that. But on this new queen nectarine, I really saw from hummingbirds to normal bees, wasps, everything on it. It was really fun to see. Another great pollinator plant is, of course, echinaceas. They are also like really fantastic for birds. I'm not a huge fan of the double flower decanation, but that's just something super personal. I just think they look a little odd. The regular, normal, old school echinacea colors I really like, and there has been really good breeding going on where they have been just so improved in their performance, they don't flop over as much. I always think that people don't talk enough about pollinator plants for shade. A lot of the new heucheras have actually really nice, I mean, it's called coral bells. And so often we think about heucheras only as a foliage plant. But actually, if you choose nice heucheras that have also nice flowers, it's a fantastic plant for shade that is also really impressive for pollinators. What's the key to getting a heuchera to live? That is really funny that you ask. This is probably also number second question I get always in my job. Key to success with heuchera is definitely the soil. You plant a heuchera in clay soil, it will just really not work. I love heucheras in containers for that reason, because they have to put good soil into a container. The fact that containers have good soil, heucheras are really awesome in containers. They pair really well in fall now with your mums and your other fall decoration. In the end, a lot of heucheras have that kind of fall colors. There's a lot of oranges and black and greens and reds, purples. I think it's really fun to decorate with heucheras in fall. Then you can still plant it in the next year in one of your garden beds. Really, the key is definitely good soil. And then how about moisture levels? Is it like to stay damp or is it like to stay dry? It really wants to be more on the dry side. It shouldn't be like super dry, but it can never be too wet. If it's too wet, heucheras very easily get a crown rot and root rot, which is something that's really hard to get rid of without chemicals. You just don't want to use that in your garden. Okay, I'll give them another shot then. <laughs> <laughs> Try it in containers. It's really a fun container plant. Continues so nice in containers. Like you don't even have to switch it out. Do you have to protect it in the winter from freezing? I don't. I'm in North Carolina, so I'm guessing as long as you're somewhere in the south, I really don't think it's a big deal in containers. Sometimes I reset it. So if you have ever grown a heuchera, you've probably noticed that heucheras can kind of pop out and it looks like this little root comes out where it loses leaves. If you just take it out and replant it and set it a little deeper, it really helps look more fresh in the next year. Sometimes I only do that every two years. I just leave them outside and they do pretty well for me. Good, because that's always something I'm concerned about is that pot freezing. You know, one of the selling points that I've always heard on perennials is that they're low maintenance, but I don't think they're really maintenance free. What maintenance practices will give us the best return for our efforts? I definitely am not a fan of people saying that perennials are low maintenance. (laughs) I think we just have to acknowledge that if you want a garden, you have to put in a little bit of an effort. But if you choose the right plants, I guess it could be low maintenance. You definitely don't have fertilizer and water like you do with annuals. One thing I love to talk about is cutbacks. 
I know there is really a huge trend to where people say, leave everything for the winter and leave winter interest. As much as I love the idea about it, I'm just not 100% convinced that that's the best practice for perennials. And I'll explain you why. Especially in that first year, I think it is really important that you get a perennial really established. Good example is echinacea. I hear so often that people can't bring echinaceas over the winter and they lose them and they're really frustrated. It really is because in the South, sometimes things bloom for so long because our season is so long and, and fall is so nice. They bloom very long. Then we leave them up for winter interest. In the meantime, the echinacea never had really time to create a taproot and really establish a good fruit system. I usually recommend all your echinacea, your agastaches, your monardas, you should really cut them back come end of September and not let them flower anymore. Let them reflush, let them really focus and put all the energy into the roots. If you do that, it also helps you really the next year because if it did this late fall reflush, it will come back much stronger, much bigger in spring. Any plant that comes back more strong and just bigger will also leave way less space for weeds. Cutbacks are really important. The other thing with cutbacks is if you cut them back even throughout the season with perennials, you so often get a really nice second flower. That's not true for every single perennial, but a lot of the flowering, sun-loving perennials, I would say it's definitely true. So like your agastaches, your monardas, your salvias, most of them you get a second round of flowers. I feel like even though that creates maintenance or work for you to cut it back, you just get so much joy out of them. They usually have a much nicer habit than they reflush and they don't look so sad through the summer. Cutbacks, I think, are really, really important. Are you cutting it back to the ground or are you cutting it just halfway back? I typically say in general, you can't go wrong with like six inches above the ground. I think there is very little plants where I would say that's not true. Oh, okay. Is there any other magnets practice that brings us a good return for our effort? I definitely also do believe in mulching. I know we talk a lot about mulching in a very bad way, but I think that comes more from those landscapes that have only mulching and one shrub in it. That's why we view mulching as a bad thing. But I do think mulching just adds organic material to your garden beds. It does help with weed suppression. I don't see mulching as a big negative thing. It's not even if I do matrix planting, I still can mulch my beds. Maybe not every year, especially for a homeowner. I do think mulching isn't something totally bad. If you have still a diverse and full and rich landscape, I don't see a problem with mulching because you either mulch or you put more compost in there, but you have to add some sort of organic material to your garden beds, in my opinion. How about dividing? Is that something that we need to be concerned with on perennials? You mean dividing and replanting plants? Yeah, do all perennials require dividing or how do we know if our perennial needs dividing? How often should we do it? I think that perennials in general don't need necessarily dividing. What is needed sometimes is that it has to be replanted. You would just see that by the performance really decreasing. You've had your tall garden flocks and it has bloomed beautiful all those years and all of a sudden you just see it decreases in blooming, it decreases in how big it is. That's a good sign that you might want to reset it. 
Dividing is just a plus, in my opinion. That just means, hey, while you already dig it up and you replant it, you can also divide it so you get more. It's not necessary for any plants as much. I do always recommend that you don't put the plant back if you do divide it and replant it somewhere else. Really don't even put a little piece back in the same spot. It usually means that the micros or whatever is in the soil are like in that spot that plant doesn't want to live for a while anymore. It's really important for delphinium, but I think delphinium are a no-go for the south, unfortunately, anyway. <laughs> but if we have listeners from the north, delphinium is definitely a plant that does not want to be replanted ever in the same spot. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, and growing a garden or landscape? I think the main thing for me is, but that's really something, also a very personal opinion, I am not a fan of irrigation. I think it shouldn't be necessary. Educate yourself or go to garden centers, you know, talk to professionals on how to have a landscape with plants that are appropriate for your area so you don't have to irrigate all the time. Irrigation at the beginning, of course, is totally necessary until your plants are established. Choosing the correct plants would be so much more important for me. The other thing I think we quickly already talked about it is really invest in soil before you start a landscape. It is so much harder to do that after you already purchased plants and planted them than to do that before. When you mean invest, you mean work on building the soil. Also buy soil somewhere or compost and build true beds before you start planting. What garden myth would you like to smash? Sometimes I wish people would just believe more in new breeding efforts. I think sometimes in my job, I hear a lot like, oh, you guys just breed new plants because all you want to do is make money. It's like, no, we genuinely want to get better genetics out to gardeners. I wish people were like more open to trialing and taking that kind of risk a little bit to check out new plants. Maybe not so much on the true gardening and customer side. I think that's valid. I think we sometimes keep ourselves from trying new things because we've always heard this myth going on that you shouldn't try it. That's kind of strange, though, because a lot of gardeners, they're looking for the latest, greatest, newest thing to do, but then it's kind of a contradiction to me. It really is. And it's so funny. I hear, like, I, I work a, a lot with retailers as well. They tell me that often, too, that uh, the people come in and they want the newest and hottest. But then if they show them the newest and hottest, then they do back out oftentimes. I just wish people would experience a little bit more, and especially designers. I really, really, it's like a dear subject to me to work more with designers. I wish they would ask for trials more or take up on trials just so they can try it. It was really cool. One of my dear friends, Preston Montague in Durham, he's a designer. We gave him a couple of mangaves, and mangave is this cross between agave and manfreda. It has been around for a little bit. It's a really, really cool plant, but it's really hard to get people to really buy into it. We gave him a couple, and he designed just his home landscape with it. He won a PPA, Perennial Plant Association, award this year with this landscape that he created around his own house just so happy to see that because he just tried this really cool new plant that everybody seems to be so scared of. It was like a really nice positive experience. 
What was it like growing up in the nursery business? Oh, <laughs> tough. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was just a typical child that never wanted to do what her dad does. Also, I was only exposed to it as if I wanted a new toy or wanted something in my life, I always had to weed and dump the old plants. It was just nursery business meant long hours, lots of vacations with family where we still just went to nurseries and botanic gardens. And that wasn't very fun as a 10-year-old girl. I wasn't like loving it when I was a little girl. Now that I think back, I'm like, this was totally an awesome life I had. You compare yourself to other kids. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, what's your earliest garden memory? You know, I don't think I have a garden memory that is that early because my dad is really even much more, he's sort of like me, like he has this amazing, unique nursery where he has gardens there, but we never gardened that much at home. But he did a lot of botanizing. So I think my earliest like plant memory is botanizing on Mount Olympus in Greek. And we were with a couple of his friends. Of course, I was like four years old, though, so I was not having it on being on this mountain. And some of his friends like made me those flower crowns. From that day on, I really always was excited to go botanizing with him because I was always hoping his friends would make me cute flower crowns. <laughs> now, what's botanizing? So botanizing is just when you go out into the wild in either your own area or somewhere in the world and you just look for new plants or you look for existing plants. Me and my family, we would do that for weeks and months anywhere in the world, especially my dad is really into it. We went, for example, when I was 10, we went for weeks to Morocco in Africa, and we just were driving around the Atlas Mountains looking for plants that are amazing that could be introduced maybe into the nursery industry. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession? Well, I actually originally didn't. I um, did my master's degree in Spanish and economic geography. While I was studying, of course, I still needed money like every student. And so I just traveled around for my dad to other botanic gardens and sold his plants as a side job. And I just started really loving it. I just love the people in this industry. So. Is that like at plant sales at botanical gardens? Yeah, exactly. So it was like in Europe, it's really big that botanic gardens have plant sales where they invite nurseries to come exhibit basically and sell the plants. My dad used to do that for years when I was growing up. So that was something we did pretty much every second weekend sometimes in during the springtime just to make extra money. As my dad became more successful and didn't need that necessarily anymore business-wise, it was a really great way for me to make extra money as a student. Do you have a funny garden story out of all of this? I think my most funny and sad garden story at the same time was when I was like a teenager. I really wanted to go to a party. I really wanted to make my dad proud. And so I went home and weeded his garden. I was like hoping that if I weed his garden, that he would let me go to this party. It turned out that he came home and he was really mad at me because I weeded the garden. I was like, but it was full of dandelions. What I didn't know was that it was really special dandelions where he paid a ton of money for that <laughs> bloomed pink from Siberia. Oh, no. <laughs> and I yanked them out all. Like, I didn't leave a single one. <laughs> oh, no. Did you, so, uh, were they salvageable after you'd pulled them or was it they gone? No, I think they were gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So I don't guess you got to go to the party then. 
Uh, yeah, I don't remember, but that was like, I feel like it's still my funny story where I'm like, if you have kids, you should encourage them to garden and maybe you sometimes have to live with the facts that maybe they did something wrong. What's your, well, this might be the answer to this question. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Well, that was probably (laughs) My biggest garden mistake, moving actually from Europe to North Carolina, I made a ton of mistakes. I remember that I arrived here and I was an intern at Plant Delights Nursery and we had a community garden. I mean, I grew up gardening, actually not so much even from my dad, but like my grandma has a beautiful vegetable garden. So I always knew how to grow vegetables. Here I arrive in April trying to do different types of lettuce and carrots and all these things. And all the people looked at me and they're like, what is she doing? It's April. Like in North Carolina, the time has way past to do like spinach and that stuff. So I made a ton of mistakes moving from one zone to another. That is much more common than we think it is. So many people nowadays move from Michigan to Florida and all of a sudden their garden knowledge, I don't want to say it's gone, but like it has to be relearned. So yeah, when I moved to North Carolina, I made a lot of mistakes. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? Funny enough, for the first time ever, I tried some annuals this year and that was really hard for me to learn how much maintenance those are. I definitely didn't water enough. I did not put enough fertilizer on them. They looked pretty bad. Never give up. So I'm going to try that next year again and just give it another shot. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have a dog and a husband to compete with, which is sometimes very hard. Gardening with a dog is totally different than not. So yeah, we have our garden divided into three parts, the dog part, the husband part, and my part that has the cool plants in it. Well, tell us about your garden. My garden is also divided again into two parts. I have the garden where I trial all the proven winners plants so I can really show my customers what the plants look here in the south for me. Then I have like a little fun garden, a lot of mangaves. We definitely love mangaves here. Got any hints for dogs in the garden? Do you try to even grow anything? You know, one thing I learned about dogs is really to not have beds necessarily at the outer edges of your garden, but more in the middle, because dogs like to run around beds. So the more I had it in like corners, my dog would always walk through it. If you have it actually more in the middle, the dog really learned how to only run in circles around my garden. It was a great thing to learn. I never grew up with dogs. I knew nothing about dogs. So that was something cool to learn. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? Even though I'm in horticulture, I make mistakes and don't read the labels. I got a shrub and I'm really not that knowledgeable about shrubs either. I asked my colleague at Proven Winners that does the shrub side of what I did wrong. She said, but it says on the label that it needs really, really moist conditions. I just didn't read the label. Sometimes it's just going really back to your basics, reading labels. Don't just assume something about a plant. What are your future plans for your garden? Um, That's a tough one. 
my ultimate goal is to have a garden that is very established. We just moved into our house, so it's fairly new. So I feel like there is tons of still things to be accomplished. You got a particular dream? You might laugh at this, but my ultimate dream right now is to even establish a lawn because I know nothing about lawns and it is very hard to get a nice lawn in North Carolina, I realized. Yeah, that would be my ultimate dream to have a really nice lawn and not just my garden beds with bare soil around. <laughs> <laughs> now, some people would think that was great. I know. Well, that's when it comes back to the dog, it's very dirty <laughs> if you don't have a lawn. Yeah. I didn't realize this would be such a tough thing to accomplish. What plant are you in love with this week? Oregonum Drops of Jupiter. It's a new ornamental oregonum. It's really cool because it's calyx, it's really dark, so even when it's done flowering, it still looks like it has a lot of color. But with the recent drought we had here in North Carolina, the leaves turned all of a sudden really nice and red. I showed it to the breed and I was like, is this normal? And he's like, not in Michigan. So it's like really, it was a fun experiment to see how a plant can look so different from a different zone how conditions can just sometimes change a plant, but it looks amazing. Like it has such a cool fall color right now. But I don't want to say that's normal because I don't know if it is. It's a great plant otherwise too. Tell us a little bit about Walter's Garden. Walter's Gardens is a perennial wholesale nursery. We sell mainly liners of perennials. We were founded as a bare root perennial farm. One of our main products is still bare root perennials, actually. So we sell bare root to customers and they plant it and then let it grow out. And then we are a really big part of Proven Winners. We're the home of Proven Winners perennials, basically. So all the perennials have to be purchased from us. We have a big R&D program where we do a lot of breeding. A lot of our perennials are in the Proven Winners program, but then also we do a lot of breeding outside the Proven Winners program as well. Do you have anything you'd like to wrap up with? I do love saying that as gardeners, you should travel a lot, look at a lot of different gardens, expand your horizon as much as you can. I love that I grew up botanizing with my dad so much because I saw so many different types of natural landscapes, so many gardens, and it really helped me look at horticulture and gardening in a different way. Don't be scared to make mistakes. We all do. We all struggle sometimes. Kata, tell us how people may connect with you. Easiest to connect actually on Instagram. Follow me on the Perennial Addicted Girl. I also have a Facebook, but I don't keep it up as much anymore. On the waltersgardens.com website, you can also find my professional email address if you want to write me an email. This has been episode 78, Perennials at Work for Heat and Humidity with Katha Chris Wallace. Thank you, Katha. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.